Tim. Thank you, praise team. What a wonderful time of worship we've had. What reason to rejoice in the fact that our God is so good. And uh, let me encourage you, if you would, grab a copy of God's Word. You can turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And as you're, as you're turning there, uh, we probably showed up here today in need of some measure of encouragement. In fact, we find ourselves on a regular basis in need of some measure of encouragement. Maybe you find yourself walking in some circumstance where you just need encouragement to continue on, some difficulty, or maybe you're just facing the reality of the world around you and find yourself discouraged. Maybe you're looking around as church family and you read all the statistics, you read all the reports, and you're looking around and you're wondering what in the world is going on, and you can find yourself very easily, even around the time of Thanksgiving, or maybe even especially around the time of Thanksgiving, profoundly discouraged. Let us look to our Lord. Let us open up His Word and let us look to Him and find in Him all manner of reasons to be encouraged, to be encouraged to continue on, to be encouraged to live in the wonder of His mercy and the glory of Christ and to walk and be encouraged by the power even of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So grab your copy of God's Word. If you didn't bring one with you, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. If you don't have one at home, you can have that one. It's our gift to you here this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we will read down through verse 6. And this is what we read. 2 Corinthians 4.1 says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, open our eyes. Open our eyes to behold the glory of Jesus. That in whatever circumstance your spirit finds us here this morning, whatever it is that's heavy in our hearts and minds, whatever it is that we are dragging around with us, whatever it is that we may even be bored with, Father, we pray, open our eyes to behold the glory of Jesus and be encouraged to live. Give light, O Lord. O Lord, do so for the great glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose mighty name we pray. Amen. So by the time we come to this passage of Scripture, and we've come a, it doesn't seem like we've come a long way, but we've come a long way in 2 Corinthians. We've talked about the God of all comfort, and we've talked about the God who raises the dead, and we've talked about the, the, the God who's always faithful, or who's always sufficient, or who is always triumphant. 
And all these things, and we even saw last week in the glory of Christ and the unveiling glory as he transforms us ever increasingly into the likeness of Christ. On the basis of all of that, he says, therefore, as we think of all the things that we have talked about and walked in, on the basis of all of that, let us be encouraged to serve well by the glory of God's mercy. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. He talks about this ministry. I mean, he's talking about this area of service, this opportunity to serve the church, this opportunity to serve the church of Corinth. And we find ourselves in various places and in various contexts with opportunities of ministry, areas of service where we can use our spiritual gifts, where we can use the talents that God has given us. And we ought to look at every opportunity that's given to us as a gift of God's mercy. We don't look at ministry opportunities as, oh, we got something else we got to do. No, they're gifts of God's mercy. We ought to approach it in that way. A gift in the sense that we do not deserve it. And yet he allows us to walk in it. We do have a lot to do. There is a lot of serving that needs to take place. There is a lot of loving one another that needs to take place. There is a lot of walking together in the truth and walking through hard things together in the truth. And we ought to give thanks to God for every opportunity that he has given us to do that very thing. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Do not quit. Now, you've got to think about this within the context of the Corinthian church. I mean, you, you, we can look back and we can talk about, you know, it would be great to be in the first century and, you know, go to church in the first century and all these sorts of things. And then we might pause a little bit and be like, but maybe not in Corinth, right? There was such a mess. There were so many things going on. There were so many issues that were taking place. And yet, the Apostle Paul here is saying, all of this is an opportunity. It's a merciful gift of God. We do not lose heart. God has given us this opportunity. God has placed us right where we are in this moment right now that we would see this as an opportunity to serve Him and enjoy Him in it. We do not lose heart. Do not give up. Do not look around in society. Do not look around in church. Do not give up on one another. And certainly do not give up on the glory of Christ. Look and see what He's done Look across and up and down the pews and rejoice in all the voices that we just sang together about how good our God is. Think about all the many things that he is doing, all the different areas of our church right now, all the many ways in which people are coming to know Christ or people are being discipled in the faith or people are being hearing the gospel for the first time. Be encouraged. Do not lose heart because God will continue to do great and mighty things. For all the budgets and all the numbers and all the figures that we can throw out there and all the trends, and you can read all the little magazines and all the Barna studies and everything else, and by and large, you read those things and you come away from them, and how do you feel? Do you feel better having read most of them? No. But when we look at the ministry that God has given us and the opportunity of service, we look at one another and we can look at one another in the eye and say, I can rejoice in what God is doing in your life. And we see this ministry as a merciful gift of God. Do not lose heart. But the church, that ministry itself is like a garden 
Keep sowing the seed. Do not grow weary in well-doing. For in time, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we do the right thing in the right way. Which means there are certain things that we do not do. He goes on to say in verse 2, he says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Many of us are pretty good at making to-do lists. You might have them littered all over your house. I don't know, maybe the whole side of your fridge is a to-do list, and maybe you've got the other to-do list of the things that you're actually going to get done off of the to-do list that's on your fridge. We're very good at doing these things, aren't we? And sometimes we also need the not-to-do list, which is what, exactly what we're given here. Here's the things that we're not going to do as a church. As we walk encouraged by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we walk encouraged by the wonder of who He is, here's what we're not going to do. Here's how we're going to avoid the distortions and the muddying of the display of the glory of the grace of Christ. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We have thrown away hidden and selfish motives that bring shame to Christ's church and Christ's name. We have thrown away underhanded, dishonest ways that ought to make people blush. Because how we are is indicative of whose we are. Within a few days, you're going to gather around the table with some people that you don't normally see. And some of them are going to look at you, and you may have relatives that You know, parents that are long gone, and they may look at you and be like, you remind me just exactly of someone else. How you are is actually displaying whose you are, and I'd recognize it a mile away. How much more so is that the case for us, brothers and sisters in Christ? How we are ought to display whose we are, that we belong to Him. And that when we find ourselves discouraged or where we, when we hear the discouraging things or when we find ourselves just hanging our heads low because of the circumstances around us, don't act in desperation. These disgraceful, underhanded ways are acts of desperation, shortcuts that become dangerously pragmatic. Maybe we'll trim off pieces of the message here or pieces of the message here. Maybe we'll just avoid all the love one another commands or, you know, even the love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who mistreat you. But certainly you don't mean these people right here, do you, Lord? Oh, but he does. We renounce disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, to walk in continually deceit. We refuse to do that. Which means we are not accomplishing our aims by, quote, any means necessary, but only by the means that bring glory and honor to Christ himself. Be encouraged. Be encouraged enough by Christ's transforming power in your own life and in the lives of those who are around you. Be encouraged enough in him not to do these things. We are not called to trick people into the kingdom of Christ. We are not called to entertain people into the kingdom of Christ. 
We are not baiting people to Jesus. None of us likes to be tricked. None of us likes to be offered something that turns out to be a trap. Some of that's the reason why you don't talk to the direct TV sales people at Walmart. Some of that's why we avoid people at car lots and any number of other places. We don't like to be tricked. We don't like to feel like we got duped. We are not doing that as a church. We are, instead of practicing cunning or tampering with God's word, we refuse to do any of that. We must not adulterate the word of God to suit our own ends. We are not using it as bait for some other point or some point of personal gain or some way of increasing our own personal prominence, of looking at His Word and just sort of pulling out this word and that word and saying, oh, well, I'll just make it mean whatever I want it to mean. Because tampering ultimately has devastating effects, doesn't it? Maybe you've been handed a cup of coffee before. You know, you look at it and you're like, oh, well, it looks kind of like coffee. You take a sip out of it. You're like, what is that? I did not know you could milk an oat, but I'm pretty certain that it's not supposed to be in my coffee. What did you do to it? Why did you tamper with this? Why did you mess it up? Or worse yet, why did you take all the caffeine out of it? What's wrong with you? And that the watered-down message of the gospel as we try to be nicer than God himself, avoiding conversations of sin, avoiding conversations of wrath, avoiding conversations of justice, not realizing that we are avoiding the wonder of the glory of the gospel and the forgiveness and reconciliation that we can have with God himself who reconciles us to himself through his own son. Don't tamper with God's word. Be encouraged in Christ and renounce the tendency that we all have to try to be Jesus' PR firm. This has gone on throughout the entire span of Christian history. We feel like we got to be his PR firm. Maybe if we just, you know, maybe if we just put a t-shirt over the whole justice thing. No, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just and sin will be punished. Maybe if we can just dress him up and put him in nice clothes, maybe civilize him a little bit, make him feel a little more managerial and we'll feel better about that. Maybe we can just cover up his compassion with some sense of trendiness. No, we want Jesus how he is and how he's revealed himself. Don't tamper with his word. Trust him enough that he is sufficient all by himself. And so if it's not all this, if we've made our not-to-do list What are we supposed to do now? But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. No hidden agenda, no secrets, truth. That if we're going to get something right as a church, let's get this right. People of the truth. That as we sing songs, we sing songs that are clear with the truth. As we go out with gather and go and we share Christ with people, let's be clear with the truth. As we teach, as we serve among children and students and adults, let's be clear with the truth. As we walk in discipleship, let's be clear with the truth. That the clarity of truth should be our commendation. 
This is what the church ought to be known for. Now, telling people the truth isn't always the most pleasant thing to do, right? It doesn't always garner the reaction of, oh, I'm so glad you told me the truth. But we tell the truth nevertheless. Because this isn't about us. This church does not belong to any one of us. This is Jesus' church. This is his kingdom. This is for his glory. This is his word. It belongs to him. So let's live like it. Let's be encouraged in, in so doing so that our clarity with the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The Corinthian church had already given the Apostle Paul such a hard time about this. He made reference to it in 1 Corinthians. You know, he shows up into town, they're like, you know what, you just weren't very good with your words. You're just not an impressive person to be around. We want somebody with a little more rhetorical flourish. We want somebody who's able to, to say things a little more clear. We want lofty speech and wisdom. He says, no, came with the Spirit and the power of God, and he transformed lives because this isn't Paul's church. This is Christ's church. What are we aiming for? As we think of all of the, the reasons that we can look around and we can find ourselves just plunging headlong into discouragement, are we going to be encouraged enough in Christ that we're not aiming for rhetoric, we're not aiming to you know, increase our social media following, we're not looking for glitz or anything fancy, that we're simply commending ourselves in the sight of God to say, Lord, we told them the truth. We told them that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through Him. That it's by grace that we're saved through faith. It's a free gift of God so that no one may boast. That we are called to holiness and to walk in it. That, that yes, we have sinned and we deserve wrath, but our God is so gracious and so full of hope. And that He has sent His only Son to die on the cross for our sin and rise from the dead. And that the only hope of forgiveness is through faith in Him. But what a hope of forgiveness in all of what He has accomplished. Let us get this right. None of us like it when people put words in our mouth. None of us like to say, oh, well, you said, and then they finish the sentence, and you're like, I did not say that at all. We must be careful that we never do that to God himself. Let us be clear. Let us be encouraged to serve well by the glory of God's mercy. And that in the face of discouragement, even, we can be encouraged by the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Because the Apostle Paul goes on to admit reality, doesn't he? Because in verse 3, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. As we pre He's saying, look, as we preach, as we teach, as we share the gospel... That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we have a sin nature that needs to be dealt with. That we are dead in our trespasses and sin. That if God were merely just, we would all be condemned and we would deservingly go to hell. But God in love sent his son to live in perfect righteousness, to die on the cross for our sin, to rise from the dead. He says, and even if our gospel, as we share that truth, even as it's veiled, 
How many times? It's just like a blackout curtain right over somebody's face. Sharing the truth of Christ with such passion and there's no response. It's like, I don't care. Don't want to know. Doesn't matter. Doesn't affect me. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. I mean, you can go down the list of all the things that people might say to that. I'm, I'm fine with what I've got. And so in the face of that sort of discouragement, we can think, okay, well, what sort of shortcuts? How can we find our way around this? He says, he says, no, 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 no. Even if our gospel is veiled, in those moments where people don't respond to it the way that they ought to, he says, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Like the sun is shining and there is the amazing light that is just ablaze and there's all the warmth and all the clarity and all the wonder and all the life and it's like some people are just standing behind the blackout curtain and just don't see it at all. No response. No concern. No amazement. Nothing. He says for those, they are those who are perishing. They are in a state of perishing. They're responding to the light like someone who is dead because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They need grace. They need resurrection. They need sight. And we need to remember the context of where we are. That same veil remains unlifted. You remember we saw this last week in verse 14 of chapter 3. That same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. We have the remedy. He's the remedy. He's saying it's veiled to those who are perishing, but that doesn't mean that's going to be the case for them forever. Just keep sharing the light of the truth of the gospel. Trust that the Lord is mighty enough that his light is stronger than the darkness. There are some people that we will see at Thanksgiving that we hardly ever see. That maybe you've, been spent, you, maybe you've spent all year long praying for them. And that they are in a state of perishing right now where they are without repentance, there's no faith in Christ, and if they continue in that way, we all know where this is headed. What will you say? If they look at you and say, give me a reason for the hope that is in you. Do we have an expectation that the light is stronger than the darkness? He says, even if it's veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. And he goes on to say, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's saying, in their case, in the case of the unbelievers, those who are in a state of perishing, the God of this world, or as we could say, the God of this age, who is influencing all the sort of cultural thoughts and opinions that are without Christ, the sort of fleeting fads of sin and distraction, we should acknowledge, if you're not following Christ, you are under the influence of Satan. Now, I know that's not a popular thing to say. But it's clear from here, it's clear from Ephesians, it's clear from multiple places. Let's be clear. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Using any means necessary to keep them from seeing the light. When we read this, we're like, this is terrifyingly discouraging, isn't it? How do you convince a blind person that mountains are majestic? 
How do you convince a blind person that light is shining? I remember reading an interview where they were talking with someone who was born blind. And they're like, well, what do you see? What do you see when you think and when you close your eyes? And he responded, was like, that's like asking me, what do I see with my elbow? It's like I have no conception of it. I don't dream in pictures. I don't see any of that. It's just nothing. Just nothingness. That's Satan's aim. To manage this kind of blindness. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Look anywhere else. His aim is to distract and divert attention. And maybe it's going to be, you're just too guilty. Maybe you know your sin all too well. You're just too guilty. Maybe, maybe you hear the whisper of the devil. You're just so unlovable. Nobody would ever want you. Maybe you hear the whisper, you're just too messy. Maybe you hear the, the whisper, you've got it all put together. You don't need to worry about that. Blind in your mind, in your thoughts, in your attention, in your aim, and understanding the truth. And so by your mind and understanding the truth, that's going to shape how you understand and your affections are shaped. And once your affections are shaped, that's going to shape the way in which you make decisions. So those who are blind to the gospel make decisions on the basis that they are blind to the gospel. But listen, listen to this. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The good news of the glory of Christ. The good news of the eternal son coming in the flesh to redeem us, to save us, to transform us. Our redeemer, our Lord, our king, whose might and grace and love knows no bounds. Who, yes, even though we are guilty, In his grace, he forgives. Even though we are unlovable, he loves us still. Even though we are messy, he is gracious and he is mighty. And that in seeing the light and you know God, you are looking to Jesus, who is the image of God. It's the same, I mean, you could look at Colossians 1.15 in the same description, that he is the image of God. You could look at Hebrews chapter 1, see the same thing. See Jesus for who he really is. See, Satan is trying to distract people from seeing this. You can talk about him as a good teacher all you want, but do we see him as he really is, as he's revealed himself in his word? By the open statement of the truth of Christ that he has given to us. That he is fully God and fully man. That he endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against the sin of all who would repent and believe. That he died, was buried, rose again, and ascended into glory and one day is coming back again. And so many even still do not see. And we can quote numbers here, but let's quote reality. We're not talking about just random numbers. We're talking about moms and dads and grandparents and children. We're talking about real people who will really exist in a real eternity somewhere. And it's solely on the basis of who they are trusting for salvation. And so we can read verse 4 and we can come to the end of verse 4 and be like, How could we not be discouraged? As we look around in our own society and watch it destroy itself for lack of truth. 
As we can look at people in the eye and we can plead with them to come to Christ and we see nothing like a curtain is just hanging over their eyes. In the face of that, in all the tears of that, in all the reality of that, do not lose heart. Because the power of the light of the gospel is stronger than the darkness. The power of the truth of Christ is mighty to shine light where no light shines just yet. Don't be discouraged. Trust in the light of Christ, which is why we don't look for a new method. We don't look for a new way. We don't look for a new message. We lean into what we've already been given. For what we proclaim, verse 5, is not ourselves. The substance of the message is not self. We're not going to say, hey, look at how great we are. We're not building our own brand. We're not looking at people walking in darkness and be like, well, if you could just be a little bit more like me, you'd be a whole lot better. We're not as a church looking around at people out in the darkness and saying, well, if you could just be a little bit more like us, you'd be a whole lot better. They need Jesus just like we do. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, God incarnate. What we're about to celebrate in Christmas is that God came to us, knowing good and well we could never earn our way to Him. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our sovereign authority. He is our only hope. He's the only Savior. He's worthy of all worship and praise and honor and glory. He's worthy of our lives being laid down. He is the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. He is the vine. And so we proclaim, we herald Him. And that's true whether or not we're standing in a pulpit somewhere whether we're standing in front of a class somewhere, or whether we're sitting at a table, whether we're at home, whether we're at work, whether we're sitting on the foot of the bed of our kid or grandkid, whatever the case may be, we're heralding Jesus, not as an act of formality, but as an act of love. Because when you see him, when you see the light of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus, you can't help but say something. When you see something that amazes you, you can't help but say something. You go to Niagara Falls, you can't help but say something. It reminded me of this story of a, that I read out of a book by J.C. Ryle. About a Native American, he was a Native American believer in the colonial days, and there was a, an Englishman that was around him and who was ungodly, an unbeliever. And so this Native American, was all he would ever talk about is Jesus. I mean, just constantly bringing it up and you know, using every conversation along the way to share Christ with this ungodly Englishman. And at finally, the guy in exasperation looks at the Native American guy. He's like, why are you talking about him so much? Why do you keep bringing this up? Why do you make so much of Jesus? What has he done for you? This Native American man answered, but before he said a word, he took a few steps back and started to gather up some leaves and some moss. He packed them together in a circle. And having packed them together in a circle, he, 
he found a, a, a little worm and he pulled that worm up and he plopped it right down there in the, in the middle of this ring of leaves and moss. And then he lit the leaves and moss on fire. And as the flames are burning and the worm is writhing around in agony and looking like it's going to be scorched and tried in every way to escape and yet there was no, no way out. And then in desperation, the worm just curls up right there in the middle, just curling up to die. And the Native American man picks the worm up out of the fire and holds him close to his chest. And then he looks at the Englishman and says this, stranger, you see that worm? I was that perishing creature, dying in my sins, hopeless, helpless, on the brink of eternal fire, and Jesus delivered me by his grace, plucked me from the fire, and placed me, this poor sinful worm that I am, close to his heart. That is why I talk of him, and why I'm never ashamed to speak his name. Is that our story? When we go proclaim the gospel, is that the reasoning behind it? Not walking out into society saying, hey, everybody, we know better than you. But saying, hey, I've been where you are. And Jesus has transformed my life. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We're here to serve. To get involved in the messiness of life. To take an interest in the person behind the sin. And trust that the gospel is mightier than the darkness. He says, for God who said, verse 6, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's as though the Apostle Paul is reminding the Corinthians. Don't forget him. Our God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Like in case you ever forget the power of the one who's at work in you and through you, look around. Go all the way back to creation. He spoke light into the darkness. He just said the word and light was there. Let there be light. And there it was. Be encouraged that God's power to give light is greater than the devil's veiling of anything. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, not only did that, but remember your own conversion. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's shown in our hearts. The light that pierced the darkness, that called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, where once we were just wallowing around in the darkness, not wanting anything to do with the light because our deeds were evil, and yet the light still came, and he still pursued us, and he still saved us, and by his grace and for his glory, we stand forgiven, having come out of the darkness clothed in our own unrighteousness, and by faith through him, he has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. Look at what he's done. The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His mercy, his grace, his love, his care, his faithfulness, his comfort, 
his compassion, his wisdom, his salvation. And we need only look in one direction, in the face of Jesus Christ. You're only going to see the knowledge of glory there. Look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Look to Jesus, the eternal Son of God who died in our place and rose from the dead. There's forgiveness in his name. Look to Jesus who is light and life in himself. Look to Jesus who is our hope. Look to Jesus who is the truth. Look to Jesus and be encouraged. Because the light we see when we look to Jesus still shines and will for all eternity. So we can get discouraged looking down at the circumstances or looking around in every direction. And we will so long as we are looking everywhere other than him. But when we lift our eyes and look to he, look to he who came, who lived, who died, who rose, who ascended, who is still enthroned in heaven on high, who is at work in our midst right now and by his spirit and for his glory is still calling people to himself, is still piercing the darkness with his marvelous light. Look to Jesus and be encouraged. Encouraged. But I wonder this morning here, in your own life individually, what do you see? When we even say the phrase, look to Jesus, what is it that you see? Nothing? Some idea, somebody you thought up sometime? Maybe you heard a few words along the way? What is, what is it? Who do you see? Look again. And as light starts to pierce the darkness, look at the one who is pristine in his purity, whose manifold perfections shine like the noonday sun, whose absolute holiness completely undoes any sense of our own self-righteousness. Catch a glimpse of him and fall on your knees and cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I don't deserve to know you. I don't deserve to be in your presence. I don't deserve to have you. I don't deserve anything. Cry out before him, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And lift your eyes to meet the one who is your justifier. Trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sin. Trust in Jesus who rose from the dead. Trust in Jesus and his power to pierce the darkness in your own life. That you would acknowledge him, that you would trust him as the light of the world. And that if you have him, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Look to Jesus. Who do you see? And may God, by his gracious spirit, pierce the darkness in the hearts and lives of anyone who finds themselves discouraged here today. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Give light, O oh Lord. Pierce the darkness. Lord, for any who are here who have never known Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, 
pierce the darkness. Open their eyes to see what they have missed so far. And may it be like the sun rising for the first time after long hours of darkness. What a refreshing wonder it is to see the sunrise on the horizon. Father, may that be the case in the hearts and lives of people today. May they turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. May they lift their eyes out of the discouragement of their own darkness and look and see that the light still shines in the darkness. Father, encourage people today by saving them for the first time. May they trust in you by faith. Simply cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and go home from this place justified. Father, forgive all of us who are your people, who are your children who know Jesus, and yet who find themselves so profoundly discouraged. Lift our eyes out of the ways in which our eyes drift into the darkness and lift our eyes to the one who is the light of the world. And we again, ourselves, individually and collectively, would find ourselves encouraged by Jesus. May our response in this moment now be merely a reflection the testimony of our hearts. I once was blind, but now I see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.